Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to tell you about a new book from Faith Matters Publishing. It's called Restoration by Patrick Mason. Um, When we started the Faith Matters Publishing Project, one of our goals was to explore what restoration really means as the church moves into its third century, and that's exactly what Patrick does. If you're like me and you've ever wondered how restoring Israel can be relevant to you, you've got to read this book. Patrick shows how, as members of the church, it's our mission to truly lead out in bringing wholeness and healing to the marginalized and the vulnerable. This book absolutely lit a fire for me, and it has totally changed the way I view my own engagement with the church and with the world. I really can't recommend this book strongly enough. It's the kind of book you want everyone you know to be reading too, so that you can talk about it. So you can pick up a copy for yourself or for your friends and family at Desert Book, um, Amazon, Audible, and Apple Books. Okay, that's it on the book for now, but we'll be sharing a lot more in the near future. Thanks as always, and here's the episode. Hey everybody, this is Aubrey Chavez from Faith Matters. So in this episode, we talked about OCD and scrupulosity. OCD is such a difficult subject because so often you hear that term thrown around really casually as an adjective when someone is talking about how perfectionistic they are, how clean they like things. But true obsessive compulsive disorder is so different than those stereotypes may lead people to believe. And it really is a serious mental health issue and one that is for sure affecting someone that you know right now and love. And it's especially hard on our missionaries. So many people who have OCD, especially religiously themed OCD, don't even know what to call their pain. They often only have religious language or explanations for what they're feeling, and that can lead to so many years of deep and totally unnecessary suffering. And that really gets to the primary reason that we're doing this episode. We want listeners who have OCD or for their loved ones to hear this and recognize something familiar in themselves that they haven't understood yet. We want them to know that they're not bad, they're not corrupt or evil, and that there really is light at the end of the tunnel. Our guest today was Bonnie Young. Bonnie is a marriage and family therapist and a mother of two. She's the author of of several academic articles on religion and mental health, and she has a bachelor's degree in history with an emphasis in Mormon women's history and a master's degree in marriage and family therapy, both from BYU. Bonnie is currently based in Seattle, and she specializes specializes in treating clients with anxiety and religious OCD or scrupulosity and sexual disorders. Bonnie was amazing, and she really helped to articulate some of the most difficult challenges that OCD presents and gave us a lot of ways to start addressing it. So thanks so much for listening. We'll point to lots of additional resources at the end of the episode if you're interested. Okay, Bonnie Young, thank you so much for for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited and grateful to be speaking with you both. Good. It's our our pleasure. Um, We think this is incredibly important conversation. It's one that we've actually wanted to do for many months. Um, we feel like, and potentially this is, this is an issue that uh, affects many church members, um, probably many of our listeners, and if, if not our listeners themselves, you know, the loved ones of, of uh, those listeners. So um, we, we are hoping that this can be both educational and, and supportive, and we're just really, we're just really excited that, that you're here to talk about it. Um, the issue, of course, that I'm, that I'm speaking about is the issue of OCD and and scrupulosity in particular. Uh, this is 
something that is near and dear to my heart as, a, as someone that has suffered from OCD and, and scrupulosity. And I just want to say to our listeners before you, uh, before you turn this off and just think, you know, OCD is uh, just straightening the pencils or whatever. Um, there is, a, there is, I think there is a, a stereotypical version of OCD um, that often maybe doesn't give it uh, the full, I don't know if credit is the right word, but you know, the credit it, it deserves because this is something that, that affects, uh, that truly does affect people's uh, well-being in a lot of, in a lot of ways. And so maybe Bonnie, just as a first question and a, and a kind of way to get us rolling, I don't, could you, could you kind of give us a useful working definition of, of OCD, of scrupulosity and potentially, you know, as you do that, it, you know, dispel any, any myths or, or stereotypes that you might, that you might hear. Yeah. Um, wonderful question to, to get started. So um, OCD Oh, the, right, the, the title or the label of OCD gets tossed around a lot, like, oh, I, I'm so OCD about this or mm-hmm. that. Um, so I think all of us have heard it, but when we actually understand it, we might be less inclined to, to throw that title or that, that label around. Um, OCD stands for Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. And um, I think in today's conversation, I'll be using OCD kind of as an umbrella term. There's different types of OCD. It kind of expresses itself in different ways. Um, An obsession is an unwanted, intrusive thought or feeling or urge that is normally really distressing to the person who experiences it. It's it's not something that's invited. A compulsion is then an act of repetitive behavior, whether that's like an external act or an internal act that's done to kind of respond to the obsession aimed at reducing the anxiety that the obsession kind of elicits. Um, and there are lots of, like I mentioned, OCD is kind of this umbrella term, but um, how this can be manifest is uh, maybe the more stereotypical, like cleaning or, or contamination, symmetry, wanting things to be you know perfectly lined up or organized, um, walking through the house a certain way, checking locks, um, but can also be manifest, which I think we're going to talk about more today, which is in religious ways. So um, worrying about sinning, worrying about worthiness in an excessive way, um, having intrusive thoughts or intrusive feelings that feel like they're violating a religious code or a standard. Um, and uh, normally this is repeated. This isn't just you know one thought or or one experience that happens. This is an ongoing uh, pattern. So when you when you say that, I imagine that you know it's possible you could hear that and say, well, I you know I have thoughts that I don't want to have, or you know I occasionally I'll think something unworthy or whatever. What's the difference between between that in sort of a standard context and in an in an actual like OCD type of context? Yeah. So. Um, I, I think it's important to normalize those unwanted thoughts. Everyone has them all the time. Um, thoughts that are not kind or are not pure. Uh, but the difference between that and OCD is, um, or an obsessive thought, is it's it feels um, very repetitive. It feels very intrusive. It and there's a there's an accompanying distress with it that does not feel easy to ignore or to escape or to brush off, right? This is not, oh yeah, I, um, 
I had that thought and, oh yeah, I'm going to move on and I'm not going to think about it again. This is, oh, I had that thought or I did this thing and I'm feeling kind of wrecked over it. I don't need to confess this. Do I need to pray about this over and over and over again? So I, maybe a simple way to say it is just the emotional experience with an everyday unwanted thought versus an obsessive thought um, is very different. And is it, could you talk about what compulsions look like with scrupulosity? Because I feel like a lot of times this may fly under the radar because we have such a rich religious vocabulary for repentance. And so it's easy to just make an OCD experience with scrupulosity make so much sense. Like it's, this is godly sorrow or this is Satan or this is the spirit and I'm supposed to confess to my bishop. And so I think it's easier to catch compulsions when the obsess, the obsession is about contamination or something. And you're seeing that like your, your kid's hands are red or, you know, they're doing something that is very obviously not normal, but, but with scrupulosity and where it's such an, um, an inside battle, I think it would be so easy to just get through so much of your life making it all make perfect sense with the gospel. So would you talk about just what compulsions in scrupulosity specifically look like? Yeah, um, they can vary. Um, sometimes it looks like confessing over and over and over again. So if you're a religious leader and you're having someone come into your office confessing the same sin um, over and over, maybe they come in once and confess the sin, they come in a second time and say, oh, I forgot some details. I need to include mm -hmm. these details and they're not experiencing relief or joy or peace from the confession, but it seems like it's actually kind of a, a cyclical thing where there's maybe momentary relief, but then long-term it's kind of dragging them down. Um, that can be a, con a compulsion. Um, checking, kind of checking in about behavior. So if like you're mm -hmm. a parent and, and your child is checking, is this okay? Mom, is this okay? Dad, am I all right? Um, or a parent and your child is confessing, confessing something that you're looking at them and you're like, does this really need to be confessed? Mm -hmm. Right. Things that most people can kind of go through without thinking twice about it. Um, someone suffering with scrupulosity, OCD can be just very, very careful, very meticulous about every action that they do, wanting to make sure that they're okay, that this is good. Um, other things that, that you can see is, um, maybe looking at, right, I, I mentioned that some of the compulsions, the responses to the obsessions can be external, but many are internal. So this mm -hmm. could look like, um, you know, saying internal prayers, um, repenting internally. Um, and it could also look like having a child or a member of your congregation look like they're just going above and beyond. Yeah. Um, maybe they're their devotion is excessive, maybe that it's more than actually needs to be done. Um, that, yeah, I, did that answer that question? Those are great. Yeah, those <laughs> yeah. are that's really interesting. We have one of our children also has OCD. And I remember realizing it all at once that every day when we were coming home from school, they were telling these stories, which I just thought was like, you know, decompressing for the day. And all at once, I realized actually every story is a confession. There was one story in particular where they said they had talked to a teacher and, and the teacher asked what their favorite Dr. Seuss book was. And they said, 
I just said the first book that came to my mind and I don't actually know if it's my favorite. And I was like kind of laughing it off. And then I thought, oh my gosh, that was a confession. Like you are, are you confessing? Like, do you feel like you have to tell me this? And they, they said, yeah, I do. And then all of a sudden I realized that's what we did every day. Like that was the coming home from school ritual was just like taking these confessions. And it was just like what you said. It was just things that seemed like over the top, like being extra careful. And none of the things were, no, nothing they said was actually bad they but but they were really concerned like did I just lie to my teacher because I wasn't positive that that was my favorite Dr. Seuss book you know it was it was like that level of of being so careful so I think had we not had any experience with OCD I never would have noticed that that's what was going on so I get how easy it would be to just to praise that even like oh you're so good for like really wanting to be that honest and like good for you for like having such a high bar for yourself. And, and I think that's something I, I, like I went to therapy for too, when, when Tim discovered that this was OCD, I had to learn how to stop like making it worse because I was, I was primarily the one taking confessions and giving Tim all of the certainty that OCD craved. So it was, it was really like something that I had to become educated about too. Cause it was, yeah. I was like contributing to this, this spiral. Yeah. It was hard. Yeah. yeah. And Bonnie, I, I wonder if, too, sorry, were you, were you going to say something? Oh, I was just going to say it's so easy to to praise that and to, to kind of feed into that cycle, um, especially if you're someone who's never struggled with, with OCD or scrupulosity. It can seem like, wow, you know, I'm, I'm doing a great job as a parent teaching my children to be, to be honest, <laughs> yeah. to be, right? So you can kind of give yourself a pat on the back, but really yeah. what's, what's driving that is a very different thing than a desire to be, um, well, maybe a better way to say it is there's just so much fear mm. uh, that's driving that behavior that you would never want your child to experience. You would yeah. never, you know, wish that upon them. Yeah, and it, you, you also recognize, I think, when you offer the certainty or you know the praise for the confession that you see the relief uh, from the person that you give the certainty to, and you can feel like you, oh you have this really connecting moment or whatever you get the confession you say oh you're so good, and that does that is releasing the pressure valve for the person that just confessed momentarily, but mm -hmm. it also reinforces the cycle, and in the long run, it, at least the way I understand it, um, is is not helpful. Like it those confessions. Each, it seems like each time you get the certainty that you need uh, it, or you, you think you need, you're, it's going to come back just as strong or stronger. And mm -hmm. uh, it's really learning to, as the, you know, as the person with OCD, accept the uncertainty and as the potential comforter in that situation, not giving the certainty that will get you out of the, that will get you out of the cycle. Yeah. Um, and I wondered, Bonnie, too, if, if it's okay, if we could take a step back to um, and just make sure we've got our our definitions lined up okay. Yeah. Um, so OCD itself is, as, this is the way I understand it, it, falls under the anxiety umbrella. And then scrupulosity falls under the OCD umbrella along with mm -hmm. several other mm -hmm. types of OCD. Is that is that an okay way to say it? Perfect, yeah, yep. Is there any chance that you could talk about to some of the other um, types of OCD and how, how OCD manifests? Because mm -hmm. I, I, I don't want anyone that's listening this, to this to get through uh, to get through the entire episode and you know potentially have OCD and not realize that they have it like I one of my I mean one of my goals with this is for people like people like me you know that didn't have any language around this to potentially recognize something in themselves and yeah. and be able to get the help and support that they that they need because it can be so incredibly 
uh, difficult and uh, even you know traumatizing in some ways. And so could you talk about uh, maybe some of those other types of OCD? And if you wouldn't mind too, I would, I would love it if you could even be explicit about what some of the, what some of the um, symptoms, I guess is the word, are. Um, even some of the difficult ones that may be difficult to talk about uh, yeah. because that's, that's what I want people to hear. Like, I'm worried that, again, I'm worried that people are having these thoughts and they just think they're, they're just so depraved you know, and they don't recognize that it's OCD. So would you mind going, going through maybe just some of those other categories? Yeah, I would love to. Um, so, sorry, I just kind of fell on my chair. Um, maybe I'll just walk through, um, I, I wrote down a couple of examples here that um, I think might be relevant, or at least ones that I've seen um, with clients that I've worked with. Um, and also, I mentioned to you, Tim and Aubrey, at the beginning, before we started recording, that I've also um, struggled with OCD um, and scrupulosity in my life. So maybe I'll give some examples from that as well. Please. So um, I'll, I'll start out when I was eight, year old, eight years old. Little eight-year-old Bonnie was really, really worried about um, safety and keeping my family safe. And it was this strange combination of... Um, you know, going to primary and hearing in primary that the spirit warns you from danger. Mm. And my little eight-year-old brain really latched onto that and um, kind of felt like, wow, okay, well, if I get a warning, I, I better follow through because I want to be obedient to God, but I also want my family to be safe. So um, when I was um, that age, the OCD manifests itself in checking so I would, before bed, I would um, have this thought, which I interpreted as the spirit telling me to check. It was, now I know it was an intrusive thought, um, but I'd go around my house, check the doors, check the locks, touch the outlets, um, check the windows. Um, then I'd go upstairs, lay in my bed and do it all over again, right? Mm -hmm. Until I felt convinced that I had, kept my family safe. So checking is one of the ways that OCD can manifest it, manifest itself. Um, worrying about harm, worrying about hurting someone or hurting something, right? Um, just this week, I was meeting with a client who put a closed pen on the sofa that we were, that she was sitting on. And she quickly picked it up because she was afraid that she that the pen ink, even though the pen was closed, was going to mark my sofa. Um, so even even really little things like worrying about hurting someone's property or hurting someone's feelings, right? Having a conversation with someone and and then obsessing about it over and over. What did I say? Did that hurt them? Do I need to apologize? Maybe following through with those apologies and even after the apology, still feeling really weighed down with this guilt of have I have I really harmed this person um having um maybe violent or um uh, really disturbing thoughts uh, or images come to mind so um working with some new moms hearing some of the mm -hmm what they're experiencing postpartum. So thinking about hard, harming their baby, strangling their baby, throwing their baby um, off of a ledge, right? I mean, as a new mom, you're having these thoughts and you're asking what kind of a monster am I, right? Being able to distinguish between that and this is your brain, right? This isn't you, this is your brain um, can be really relieving. Um, 
uh, intrusive sexual thoughts. So um, even and especially sexual thoughts that might be kind of religious in nature. So thinking something sexual about a religious figure, about Jesus or, or God, um, having I, an acquaintance once mentioned that when they went to the temple, all they could think about were penises, right? Men's genitals. Um, not something that she would have ever invited, right? She was probably yeah. going to the temple to get help with that <laughs> because, yeah. she, because she thought that this was something that she had power over, something that she had control over, but um, just didn't quite understand at that point what this really meant or what this really was. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, th there, there's a few examples of, of what this might look like. Yeah, I, um, one that I've heard about too, and that I think could be potentially the most distressing is when, I mean, you potentially could combine a couple of those with, with pedophilia OCD. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I, especially, I, and I think, you know, potentially this could manifest itself, um, especially again with, in tandem with scrupulosity or yeah. with missionaries, et cetera, who like, uh, you know, in my case on my mission, and I, I think this is still the case, you know, it was very, very important to, you know, not have any physical contact with, with children, um, yeah. you know, shake their hands, but you would definitely never have a child on your lap or, or anything yeah. like that. And I worry about, and I have, a t have talked to missionaries where that has, that those rules have turned into uh, obsessive thoughts yeah. and, you know, people actually start to believe that they're, that they're pedophiles uh -huh. and that I can't, you know, I can't imagine anything um, much more, much more distressing than that or something that is potentially more difficult to talk to, talk, talk with anyone about, yeah. you know, even with a, even with a therapist. Um, yeah. I would imagine that, I, I would imagine that you, and I'm making stuff up here, but that you have clients that have suffered from this, that it was yeah. very difficult. And maybe in the first session or first several sessions, it was something they couldn't talk about. Definitely. Yeah. Or fifth or 10th yeah. session. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there is so much shame and fear mm -hmm. around that. And the truth is that the people who are feeling this, this fear around it, the people that are suffering this way are people who would never ever do something to harm a child, yeah. right? Um, yet not being able to distinguish, not being able to discern that this, this is not me, this is not a desire I have, this is not something I want, I'm not choosing this. Um, and actually believing that these thoughts are coming from me, maybe these thoughts are coming from in kind of a, a deep dark place inside of me, this is, these are my true feelings coming yeah. through, um, can just feel absolutely haunting um, and can cause these people to avoid situations that um, that will really, really just um, kind of interrupt their life, right? A, a father or a mother who feels like when they are changing their child's diaper um, and, and they see their child's genitals, right? And, and maybe having a, an unwanted thought or an intrusive thought or image come to mind, they interpret that as, oh, I, this is something that I want to do to my child. Um, right. Then they avoid that, right? They're avoiding changing their child's diaper because they feel like that is somehow prompting these thoughts to come. Um, and so, right, that can lead to kind of really interrupting relationships interrupting yeah. routines that um, are you know, really important for families. Yeah. Something and that, it, oh, go, oh, go ahead. ahead. I was gonna say something that we learned early on that was, that brought me 
a lot of peace too, was just learning that, that a lot of times OCD themes revolve around what you care about most. Mm-hmm. And so it, as we kind of like moved through our life, it was nice to be able to expect that when there was this new stage that we could expect OCD to adapt and we, we could expect new obsessions to, to arrive that had to do with whatever new thing we cared about most. And, and so I think it, it, I hope it is kind of relieving to know that, you know, if it, if it weren't so taboo, it would be, it probably wouldn't be a theme for you. You know, if you, if you didn't care so much, it probably wouldn't be a theme. And I saw just today, I saw some statistics about, about religious OCDs specifically. And it said that even though for, I think generally, um, for OCD populations, it's something like only five to 30% suffer from religious OCD, but within religious community, like strict religious communities, that number skyrockets to like 50 or 60%, mm-hmm. which I think just kind of affirms that, that you, if you care so much about being pure and, and being moral and right with God, then, then that is kind of where OCD may focus. And, and in a way that's sort of like, I hope that's kind of a, it's kind of assuring that like you're a good person, <laughs> like you're not choosing to have these, these thoughts. And Tim, I wanted to hear what you're going to say, but also will you address Bonnie? Like we, we talk about controlling thoughts still, like we talk about, you've got to sing a hymn and like choose to have virtuous thoughts and let virtue garnish their thoughts. Like our vocabulary around thoughts are, are so much about control. And so I think it's so hard to unlearn that because you just start absorbing very early that like it is your fault if you're having bad thoughts and, and you must be letting them in somehow, or maybe you're not worthy of the spirit and that's why you can't control them. So so if you could address like, how can we talk about thoughts with whether you have OCD or not, like, is, is it ever helpful to give people the impression that you are in control of what you, of the thoughts that pop into your mind? Yeah, that's a, a beautiful question. And one that I feel like I could talk about all day. Um, mm-hmm. I, 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 I want to be careful when I'm answering this um, because I think it's a mistake to say that we have no control over our thoughts. But I also know, and I've seen with my clients personally, that there's kind of this paradoxical relationship between trying to control something and then have it control you. Uh, <laughs> right? Yeah. That um, I, I lean a lot um, um, the, the wisdom that's found uh, in, in the tradition of, of Buddhism, in mindfulness, this idea of acceptance um, versus trying to push something out of your mind. Um, I've got, man, I've got so many thoughts running through my head right now. So let me try to, to organize it. Um, I, so when, when you're speaking to uh, an audience, a group, whether that's your family or church, right? You are speaking to many different needs. So in that audience, in that group, there's probably someone who might actually need some correction, <laughs> who might need some help, um, you know, encouragement to be a little bit uh, more obedient. But then there also might be someone in that congregation who is doing the very best they can and is harder on themselves than you would wish or you could even imagine and and you would be heartbroken to see how hard they are on themselves so if you're telling a a group of 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 young people for example to control their thoughts there's going to be someone who can hear that and be like yeah whatever and then Mm -hmm. there's going to be someone who's listening to that and they're going to make a list of you know 20 unworthy thoughts that they've had that day and then feel like they need to go confess them so um i think we just need to bear in mind that um 
that diversity, the diversity in our congregations, in our families, and, and keep those people in mind. I think when we use examples like your mind is a stage or you can control your thoughts, um, that might be actually really helpful for some people. It can also be really damning for mm -hmm. others. And um, the approach that I try to use with my clients and also personally is one of acceptance that, um, right, all of us have thoughts that we don't want to have and in a very large part that are out of our control, completely out of our control. And um, sometimes we can control what to do with those thoughts. Sometimes it's our brain tricking us. Sometimes it's a glitch in the brain and it's not something that we have control of. And sometimes when we even try harder to control those thoughts, they're going to come back even harder. And that's when we can go get help. That's when we can recognize that this is, this is not a spiritual problem. This is a mental problem. Mm -hmm. This isn't something that you're going to be able to, um, to manage with prayer or scripture or confession or temple attendance, right? This is something that you might need extra help with um, therapy, medication, right? Another way to deal with this because it's, this is not a symptom of spiritual weakness or sin. I can really attest to that um, because the time that OCD was the biggest struggle for me was, was on my mission. Mm -hmm. um, and basically, you know, all of the, uh, all of the types of OCD that we've talked about so far, plus some others, which I think might be worth talking about as well, um, you know, manifest themselves at some point for me on my mission. Yeah. And uh, I remember, um, I remember learning, I think there was a manual, some kind of manual with a quote from Boyd K. Packer that I, took to heart early on my mission that talked about singing a hymn, you know, when you had, when you had what you considered to be an unworthy thought. And um, I, I would, you know, I tried to take that advice and because I, the part of the quote was like, if you sing, if you sing the hymn, you know, something worthy and unworthy can't exist in your mind at the same time. And I was like, okay, all I care about is getting rid of what's unworthy. And like, if that, if that promise is true, then, you know, I've found, I've found the antidote here. And so I would sing these hymns in my mind. And I mean, as embarrassing as this is to say, because I'm still, I still feel an incredible amount of shame about this. Um, you know, the words of the hymn, the images in the hymn, uh, the, uh, the general subjects of the hymn would mix themselves up in my mind in some, what I consider to be very perverted way uh, to again, get me back to sort of what we were talking about with the religiosity and religious figures type of, um, type of OCD. And that then caused even more dissonance because you know, in any normal person, you know, I've heard Boyd K. Packer say that you can't mix worthy and unworthy in your mind at the same time. And I seemed to be the exception to that rule. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I like, there was no question in my mind when I was a missionary that I was a monster, that I was completely depraved, that no one had, I mean, and it's it, part of the, I mean, part of the problem is because we talk about this so little mm -hmm. that when people are going through it, they think they're the only ones. And it's so, un it's just so unusual. It's so out of, I mean, it's not unusual for the, I mean, for the record, but it appears to be because of our lack of talking about it so unusual that we, like people that suffer from OCD um, start to think that they're truly the only ones that have ever, that ever gone this far down this path of depravity. Mm -hmm. And so for me, and I've, I've talked about this a little bit. I, we talked about this with Richard Osler, um, but for me, what that meant was I was completely beyond 
any ability to repent, um, any ability to to have my have my sins forgiven. And and like it's so sad. I mean, obviously this was all happening inside my head. Like I didn't have any sins that were like from an external perspective, something that even needed to be repented of or confessed or whatever. But I had gone so far down this down this path that I knew for a fact that I was, and without getting like, you know, obviously we have our specific theology around heaven and hell, but like I, in my mind, to put it simply, I was going to hell. And the only, um, the only sort of redeeming factor that I had as a missionary was that I would be able to potentially share the truth with others so that they didn't, so that they didn't share my faith. And um, that was just, I mean, that was, that's just a very, very unhealthy, unhealthy place to be. And I wonder, this is kind of, I'm, I guess I'm rambling a little bit here, um, but I just want to, I just want to convey, you know, empathy for people that are suffering with this because it is, it, it's by far the hardest thing I've ever gone through. And people, I just, I just don't want, you know, people to, I think it's inevitable. I don't want people to roll their eyes when they hear, oh, OCD is the hardest thing you've ever gone through, but it can be truly severe, like truly, truly severe. And um, when we were having our discussion on depression with Jane Clayson Johnson, I mentioned this, I, I, I'm not sure, you know, what the formal definition of suicidality is, but like, I definitely wanted to die. Like mm-hmm. I, um, you know, I, I hoped to get hit by a bus, that type of thing. Not that I, not that I had any plans to do so, but again, like what we talked about harm, the harm OCD mm-hmm. um, was a big part of, uh, was a big part of what I was dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was, convinced that I was a danger to society in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, my quote unquote suicidality, and I don't want to minimize what, uh, you know, other people's experience of suicidality by any means, because I'm not, I'm not even sure that that's that I'm using the term correctly, but my desire to die was in part because I was worried that I was going to hurt other people, you know, yeah. and that's, uh, that's a very uh, unhealthy and difficult spot. To, I mean, it's a difficult thing to believe about yourself, Yeah, you know? And so I don't, I don't really know where I'm going with this. <laughs> I, I, I'll comment on that, Tim. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And, um, and you are, you are not alone. It, I was looking at some, um, some research from the American Psych- Psychiatric Association from the last uh, DSM, which is the a manual for mental health diagnoses. And um, the, statistics, the statistics that I found there is that about half of people suffering from OCD will have suicidal thoughts. So, mm. um, right, this is something that feels um, unbearable, something that you, it would be relieving to die, to be able to escape how haunting and intrusive these thoughts are. And, um, and that about a fourth of people that suffer with OCD will make an attempt, a suicide oh attempt. So um, yeah, this isn't, this isn't um, something that's a mild mental illness. It can be, but it can also be very, very serious, very painful. I read too that the average age of onset is 19 or 19 and a half. And so it seems like, I mean, I just can't imagine this coming on while you're 
living away from your support system on a mission in the most rigid environment that you probably <laughs> experienced in your life up to that point. So are there anything, are there any things that come to your mind that would make missions um, just a more comfortable place for someone who has OCD or, or maybe even specifically, are there things that a mission president should be watching for? We've talked before about what a great mission president Tim had, but like, had he ever even heard of OCD, he would have known, he would have known like, I mean, when Tim, like day one, like he would have, he would have been able to see it. And so maybe it's just about education, but so are there things that you would love to tell every mission president? Like if you get a mission or a mission president's wife, if, if you meet a missionary and you see this, like this, this is something you need to look at. And just to, just to personalize that a little bit too, like Aubrey mentioned that we have, a child that suffers from OCD and I have an incredible amount of hesitation about sending them on a mission mm -hmm. because I know, you know, I, I know what my experience was and mm -hmm. like, to be honest, I can't think of another word other than torture to describe those two years. Like I know, I know so many people had such wonderful experiences on their mission. And I, and I think, yeah, I did grow in a lot of ways. Um, but it, like every day I woke up and I was like, I can't believe that this is what my life has become. You know, and it was, it was, a, it was a complete, uh, you know, prison of my own making, you know, I felt like inside, inside my head mm -hmm. and I can't imagine sending my own child out to have that experience. Like, I, I don't want to be, you know, I, I, sometimes I worry about our generation being a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit too soft. Like we've got to, you know, our kids have got to through, go through tough stuff, but like, not this, I cannot, you know, I cannot imagine sending, sending a child of mine out to have that experience. Yeah. One, I think, um, OCD loves certainty. And I think that we have a beautiful opportunity to be able to, um, to introduce some uncertainty to kind of push against maybe some of that rigidity that missions are the right way for everyone. I worked with a client um, who now is in uh, his early thirties and um, in his words, he said that his mission broke him at the same time, it also kind of woke him up to this part of himself and he was able to get the help that he needed. During his mission, it was the most, his OCD was the most severe that it um, had ever been and since has ever been. But this was also kind of a catalyst in his life for him to get help that he might not have gotten in the first place. He, one, he, he said a couple of things that really stood out to me. Um, he, he said that he, he got to a point on his mission after suffering, um, right, trying to, um, trying to be exactly obedient and the, the character and the personality and leadership style of the mission presidents kind of fed into mm -hmm. his OCD, right? This focus on exact obedience, no exceptions ever. Yeah. Um, people are going to lose their salvation if you, you know, mess up, if you don't, do this many contacts a day, even if you're doing other good things during your time. So yes. um, he, 
he he started working with a therapist on his mission and he he said that he came to the point where he realized that what he was doing on his mission the the obsessive and compulsive things that he was doing on his mission was never what god wanted him to do in the first place and and that he stopped believing in a god who would want him to suffer in the way that he was suffering it was kind of this transitional point where he was able to kind of reassess and and ask himself who is God what does God actually expect from me um is this God that's requiring this of me or is this something else is this myself and um he he has kind of had this opportunity to navigate his his relationship with authority in the church kind of getting to a place where he can realize you know I can be wrong I'm not perfect but I can also discern truth and other people can be wrong too, even if they're in positions of authority. And, and getting to that point, I think developmentally, that, that's pretty hard for, I think, a lot of adolescents to do, just brain development. We're not quite in that place as an adolescent. I think as we're emerging into adulthood, that's, that's a belief. That's something that you can embody um, and, and kind of make sense of. Um, and... He's, he's kind of transitioned to like this complete trust and authority. Everything that they say applies to me. I got to do for my salvation um, mm -hmm. to like a more realistic trust and authority, right? Um, not like jaded, but just more discerning and wise. And, um, and so I, I think mission presidents can, um, I, I would invite all leaders, whether you're a mission president or a bishop, a young women's leader, a a father, a mother, to, to try to encourage um, maybe more mature belief um, mm -hmm. in appropriate ways. Um, I kind of, kind of going back to that thing I said, every audience that you're speaking to is going to have maybe some people who need to, you know, shape up a little bit, but then also people who are doing more than they need to. So just keeping that in mind. Um, my husband and I lived in Barcelona for a couple years while he was attending business school out there. And while I was there, I was working with um, the Barcelona mission under um, the mission president to work with missionaries um, suffering with scrupulosity. And him and his wife, um, Craig and Lark Galley, who are some of my heroes, um, they went, I mean, they made this a priority they educated their missions, missionaries about it. They had workshops um, trainings for their leaders wow. um, how to recognize this. They sent out educational material to their missionaries and, and it was huge. A lot of the missionaries that I worked with were just so relieved to know this isn't, this isn't what God is expecting. Um, this isn't helping me. This isn't, this isn't godly. This isn't good. These aren't good fruits. Mm -hmm. And um, just being kind of empowering them with this perspective of, of what scrupulosity looks like and then how to respond to it versus, you know, doing the compulsion that the scrupulosity would, would want you to. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that. And I, you know, when I, when I was on my mission, it, it didn't seem like at least I was unaware of any mental health resources that, that might have been available to me. Is that, is that more common? Now, do you know to have to have mental health available to missionaries, mental health, um, you know, therapy, counseling, resources of any kind available? 
I think it's becoming more common and I hope that that continues. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if you were to, I love the idea that they're, you know, sending out training materials, making this a real priority. I, and I'm sure, you know, we have leaders, uh, church leaders, bishops, uh, state presidents, branch presidents, mission presidents that listen to this podcast. And so if you were able to, uh, you know, give a, you know, the two minute version of how, how, what are they, what are they watching for, you know, how to recognize this? What, how would you, how would you uh, explain that? Yeah. Um, uh, repetitive, if, if you're having missionaries um, come to you or, or members come to you with, um, with a, a religion that is tormenting to them um, and maybe you can't see it on the, maybe that's not very visible, right? Sometimes I think we're, we're all pretty good at hiding torment, um, mm -hmm. uh, especially as missionaries, as we're told to be like the examples of what living the gospel can look like. Yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that was such a big one for me. Was, can I just jump in there? Because yeah. like, it's so, so hard when you're feeling, when you're feeling those things and to know that on the outside, you have to be smiling. You have to be perfectly you know, put together because again, like the, what you learn is that if you're not doing those things, somebody might miss out on the gospel because they don't see how much it's benefiting you. And so there's an additional amount of dissonance that's coming because like, I'm not feeling it, but I have to act this way or else, you mm -hmm. know, there are eternal consequences for others. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I would encourage, um, so things to look out for, for them, um, is just if, The, if efforts to live the gospel, if the efforts to, to follow the rules are leading to more suffering, um, that is probably a, an indication that there is some OCD or, or scrupulosity going on, right? I mean, the, the gospel, you know, finding peace, living a peaceful life does include some suffering, right? Of course, of course it does. We, we can't improve without some uh, difficulty, but the difficulty that is experienced in scrupulosity is not something that God expects, is right. not something that is like a refining fire, right? It is, it is hellfire. <laughs> there, there's, mm -hmm. there's really, um, this is not something that is necessary to go through for growth. And, um, and it, it, this is not a test of your devotion, right? Of just sticking with this. God's not going to reward you for, you know, sticking it out. He, he doesn't expect that from you. So I, um, I, I think a lot of it's difficult because a lot of this is internal. A lot mm -hmm. of this you might never know. So I would say um, as a leader, taking it upon yourself to create a culture where um, there's flexibility and there is mercy and um, there is safety in talking about these things with you. If, if you're emanating a spirit of, you know, toxic perfectionism, it's probably going to be hard for those missionaries to, or, or church members to come in and meet with you and be honest with you. Yeah. That's now, a great if you, answer. Uh, yeah, I love that. Thank you. It, and if you were, you know, again, talking to a, a church leader or even, or even a parent who starts to recognize maybe some of these, 
uh, you know, some of these things like a, a, a toxicity to the lived religion or repeated confessions that, you know, are for very minor, very minor things or just repeated confessions generally that are over and over. And you start to say, okay, I, you know, I've heard about this, this might be OCD or, or scrupulosity. What's your list of like things to do or thing, and I guess things not to do? Yeah. Um, things not to do is to um, play into the cycle kind of like Aubrey was saying at the beginning. Um, we're, not, we're not celebrating this. We're not praising this. We're, we're recognizing it for what it is. So number one step is just become educated um, and then seek help, right? This is not something that is meant to be taken care of by reading a book and getting over it yourself, right? This is something that, right? I, I find that profound healing happens when we're able to share an experience with someone and they hear it and they say, you're not alone. Or they say, mm -hmm. yeah, I've been there. Or you, um, I, I just had another client who said that very same thing, right? When we know that we are not alone in these things that can feel so shameful and, um, and so isolating, that is um, one of the biggest uh, ways that we can seek healing. So yeah, I, that's not a very long list, but um, medication. List. <laughs> <laughs> medication is also um, something that can be really helpful for a lot of people. So talking to a doctor or a psychiatrist, um, finding a medication that feels like it's a good fit. Um, and, and this answer might, I guess I'm adding a fourth thing to my list. Um, when, when I was in Barcelona, again, my, my husband was attending a, 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 a business school that was an initiative of Opus Dei, which is part of the Catholic Church. And um, so there was a, a priest on campus, kind of, I guess, the campus priest. Um, I'm, I'm probably using a lot of wrong words. I need to get to know the Catholic Church better. <laughs> but um, I, as I was working with missionaries and I, I had met this priest before, I, I thought to myself, I want to know, you know, here's a man who has heard hundreds, thousands of confessions. And, mm. um, and I bet he has some really good perspective on this, not so much from a psychological standpoint, but from a more a spiritual or a kind of a pastoral st standpoint. And uh, so I, I went and I talked to him and kind of picked his brain about scrupulosity and, and something that he said stood out, stood out a lot to me. And, and this was that when people are suffering with scrupulosity that um, in part this stems from a, a misunderstanding of the nature of God, mm. of um, overemphasizing the, the justice and the exactness of God and, and maybe missing the, the nurturing, loving, patient, um, gentle side of God and being able to help his parishioners understand God's character, his fatherly character um, is something that can kind of help that, that scrupulosity. Now that's um, something that, you know, if I'm, I'm meeting with a client, that's uh, not the first thing that I, I go to, but being able to include that and talk about, you know, who is this God that is expecting these things of you, that that's important. So as a parent, as a leader, making sure that you are, you're also reflecting um, the love and the mercy that God has for these individuals and their suffering. I love yeah. that. This, and this to me uh, goes back to some of the dis other discussions we've been having recently on Faith Matters where 
I wonder if that this is a way in which we would benefit from bringing more of the feminine divine into mm -hmm. our into our religious lives and the way that we think about God. I, not that mm -hmm. I think we have any real understanding of, you know, the specific attributes of a heavenly father versus a heavenly mother. But I do think if we, you know, if we allow that that feminine side into our minds and our psyches and our hearts a little bit more, I think it naturally lends itself probably more to the nurturing, uh, the nurturing and caring side of God, you know, mm -hmm. so, and I'm not making any particular statement here other than it's another way that we, I think we could benefit from, from more emphasis on that unique and amazing yeah. doctrine that we have of a, of a heavenly mother. Yeah. And I keep thinking about what you said, Bonnie, about just like, is it asking yourself, is this fear motivated? You know, are you, are you, are you doing these confessions or these prayers over and over out of fear? And I keep thinking of second Timothy and that God is not the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And it just feels like that is permission to go figure this out. Like, like that, that feels like the loophole for, okay, maybe I'm going to hold this thought that maybe I'm lying or I'm not, or I'm impure because God is the spirit of, uh, or God has given me a sound mind and I want to go, I want to go figure that out instead of just letting my life be ruled by fear, which is, I think what it can totally feel like. And I think this kind of brings us to exposure response prevention. And I wonder if you could just kind of give us a little overview. And I think it's so hard with scrupulosity specifically because all of these obsessions are based in, uh, in actual values. And so, and so I think, you know, if you're, if, if it's contamination or if it's harm or you're, you know, you're obsessing about safety, like, that doesn't feel like a, like a, you're going to put yourself out of alignment with what God wants from you. And I just feel like this is so tricky because how, how do you do an exposure without feeling like you are willfully sinning, you know? So could you talk about what exposures are and, and how specifically does that apply to somebody with a, a religious version of OCD? Yeah. So, um, Exposures um, or exposure and response prevention are some of the most, that's one of the like, first line um, interventions for someone suffering with OCD. It's basically this idea of like, uh, to kind of put it crudely, like just facing your fears, mm -hmm. <laughs> but then practicing responding differently to them. So exposing people to situations that will provoke the obsession or kind of inviting the obsession, like inviting the intrusive thought, inviting the thing that feels so scary, and then practicing not responding in the way that you normally do. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, one of the goals of this is something that's called habituation, which is just a fancy word for just getting used to the feelings that come and, and then kind of reducing your reliance on the obsession. So. Um, this is tricky because it's, we never want to sin, right? <laughs> we, we don't want to like, and if you're a therapist and you're saying, oh, I'm going to have you sin right there, you, that client <laughs> is not going to come back. So, um, sometimes it's necessary to include a church leader mm. in the therapy um, right. We live in, we live in a religious, in a religion that authority and permission from authority is really important. And oftentimes we look to authority before we look to ourselves or before we look to God to get our answers. Right. Um, so while that might be something that eventually we'd like to work on changing, um, <laughs> that's something we're just going to like work with right now and, and help get, 
the bishop or a parent or I don't know, mission president on board with the treatment, right? That this exposure is not an invitation to sin. This is not an invitation to become a more carnal person. This is one of the best ways to um, decrease those obsessions and to decrease your reliance on the compulsions that follow the obsessions. Um, and uh, this can feel, yeah, so uncomfortable for someone who, um, who is so afraid of, of what those obsessions or what those, right, that, what that sin, and I'm, I guess this is yeah. a podcast, but I'm using quotes right, right now, <laughs> <laughs> might mean, um, but practicing it over and over and over can help um, someone wake up to or get used to the fact that this is actually not a sin that they're actually not doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. And um, again, I, to kind of use some uh, colloquial language, kind of this idea of reverse psychology, it's like yeah. if, if, you're, if you're choosing to make it happen, then maybe this is not something that is gonna control you so mm -hmm. much. Which then gives you the freedom to make those choices. You know, I, I feel like that's the irony is like, you feel like you, you OCD is saying you can never mess up. Like you can never, ever, ever mess up. And, and after exposure, it's like, you finally have a little bit of freedom to choose to draw closer to God in that pure way, if you want to, but like it under the guise of OCD, like you really are being controlled. Like there's, there's so little agency there because you're compelled to be perfect. So I, I love that idea of just like creating a little bit of space so that you are healthy enough to, to voluntarily have this relationship with God, if that's what you choose. And yeah. I just keep thinking of our little kid who has this and just how hard it is that like there, there seems to be so little freedom to make those choices because OCD demands so much. And it's been such a gift to see, to start introducing exposures and to see just like how free they are to be whatever kind of person that they want to be, which is a good person, you know, but now there's like enough freedom that they can like really make those choices without the influence of, of OCD, which was so oppressive. It was like, we were, it felt like we were losing them. Like it was so hard to even see their personality at all because OCD had like such an influence on every single decision. And, and so as like hard and uncomfortable as those exposures were for them, like that, that has been the gift of real freedom to, to be what they want to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, uh, we attended a like, like two day camp slash conference put on by the IOCDF for kids with, with OCD a few, uh, a few weeks ago. And they played this amazing movie. We, we should probably link to it in the, yeah. um, in the description, but it, it profiled several kids that had OCD. And one of them that was maybe the most memorable was a, a child that for whatever reason was tormented by the idea of like bodybuilders or like really, really big muscles. It was just, uh, um, it was something that he couldn't, he couldn't deal with. And like, even like they described on road trips, like if he thought they were heading towards somewhere, you know, where he would, he would see that it would drive him absolutely crazy. And it just disrupted, it disrupted everything. And I want to, I want to make the point that if someone's listening to this and feels like they might have OCD, don't be afraid to go see a therapist because they're going to say, Oh, you're going to have to do an exposure. And mm -hmm like, you know, face the worst fear you have right away. 
um, because in this, and this video illustrated it really well because the, the exposures really were, were baby steps. And, you know, and maybe Aubrey, you could help me if I miss, if I, if I miss things here, but like, you know, the very first step was, and I'm making this up a little bit, but like, you know, draw a picture of a, of a flexing yeah, arm or something like mm -hmm. that. And then it was like, okay, look at pictures of superheroes. And they kind of, and once those, and, and obviously that was difficult right at the beginning, which I know sounds crazy, but like, it's yeah. like, this is the thing that people with OCD deal with where, it, and it sounds like this couldn't actually be torment, but trust me, it really, th these kinds of things really can be. Okay. And um, eventually, you know, it was all the way along all these baby steps until finally they went to like a gold's gym or something and found, and the final exposure was like, find the biggest guy in the gym and go talk to him. <laughs> and the biggest guy in the gym, like was super nice. And like, you know, he shook his hand. And then once, the, you know, once it was clear, he was comfortably like lifted him up and gave him a, gave him a big hug. And like, that was sort of the culmination of the exposures, but that wasn't day one, you know? Yeah. It was, that was, um, that was very far along the chain. Once, once the person was already comfortable, like getting much, much more comfortable with the idea of facing, of facing their fears. And so I just, I just don't want people to be hesitant about talking to a therapist because obviously, and I'm sure this is a big part of your job, Bonnie, is making sure that the, per the client that you're talking to is comfortable. It's not, you're not forcing them to do anything that they're not going to be comfortable with. It's, it's taking, it's going at their, at their pace. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. One, one that we did with our child that suffers with this was, so lying is a really big one for them. And, and so we found things like, okay, you know, tell me a story and just leave out some details. Like, it's not a lie. You just didn't tell me what color your shoes were when this happened, you know? And so that was something that felt like, you know, really innocuous and it was easy to do and felt kind of silly to like know that there was this secret about the story and it totally built up some momentum so that they felt kind of excited and like they had some power back and then we could move the exposures along. And something else that I learned at this conference that was really important to me, I thought was that they said, this is such a positive thing, even if you don't have OCD. So if you have another child and you're wondering, like, I don't know if it's officially OCD, like ERP is not going to hurt anybody. Like it's a great way to deal with any anxiety. So, you know, if you're afraid of public speaking and that doesn't have to be OCD, but you can, you can start answering your phone when you don't recognize the number or like, you know, doing something so little that you, you can handle, like it's small and you're just, they're little steps and you get some momentum and then you know, pretty soon you're giving a talk or whatever. So I, I felt like that was really useful to know and something that we've really incorporated with our whole family. It's just, it's a way to deal with fear so that nothing gets too out of control for anybody, even whether or not we even know if it's OCD. And I know I kind of mentioned this before, but just like one more plug for like getting educated, if you're the support person, if you're the spouse to get educated, because I think something that was really hard for me when I didn't know what it was, was that if you are the spouse or the person taking confession, like you are in the position of being the devil on their shoulder, you know, in religious o OCD, like my side of every argument was like, I don't know. It's not that bad. I don't, it's not that dishonest. Like, I don't, it's fine. And like hearing yourself say that over and over with like, that was very, that was like hard on my self-esteem. Like maybe I don't have the spirit with me. Like, why didn't I know that that was bad? And like, he clearly like feels so convicted and I felt nothing. And like, so it was really good for me to learn all about OCD and understand that like, yeah, it wasn't on my radar and that's not because I had offended the spirit somehow, you know, and, and then I learned, you know, how to talk about it and that I wasn't, my role shouldn't, shouldn't be to give assurance and, and certainty 
you know, when those things come up, but that's the intuitive thing to do when someone you love is feeling tortured and, and you don't understand, like you want to gift them all the certainty in the world that they're a good person. And, but that was simultaneously, like it hurt me and, and it was totally contributing to this OCD cycle. So just a plug that like, this is a family affair and everybody needs to understand what's going on here so that you can actually be helpful. And so that you're not, you're not getting hurt in the meantime. The most important thing that uh, that has helped me and our family is, is talking to people like you, Bonnie, it's, it's going, it's yeah. actually going to therapy and it can be like, like I said, it can be very difficult and shameful because a lot of times these um, intrusive thoughts that you have are so difficult to talk about and are such taboos. Like OCD loves to attack the most taboo things because they're what you care about not being or not doing, mm-hmm. you know? And so that I think that can prevent a lot of people from, from going and seeing a, a therapist. Um, but like, and I mentioned this on Richard Oslo's podcast, but I don't think it's gone on ours. So I, I might as well do it here. Like the, the final catalyst for me to actually go see a therapist was, and again, this goes back to what Aubrey said, that OCD seems to attack the thing that you care about the most in the world. And so for me on my mission, it was all worthiness stuff. You know, a lot of like sexuality, that kind of stuff because like I cared so much about being pure. Like that was the number, my, I felt like my number one responsibility as a missionary, other, you know, other than the work that we were doing, like my internal responsibility. And so mm-hmm. it, it attacked that just constantly. Um, a few years later, when I was applying to grad school, um, I really, I, I, was, it was, I was applying to MBA programs and I, you know, I had a few programs that I was really excited about, you know, lifelong dream type of thing to, to get in. And went through the whole application process, did the essays, did the application, and ended up getting into my, my number one choice. It was, I was literally going to fulfill a lifelong dream of mine, you know, and it was a, it was a really exciting time in that. And I had just been so focused on all of the application process, like the preparation, that that in many ways, and I don't want to say this to downplay, you know, the importance of family or anything like that, but, you know, it was just, it was very present for yeah. me. And it was sort of the most important thing that I was fo- spending a lot of time on at that time. And so of course, OCD decided that it was going to attack that part of my life. And after I'd been admitted, I, uh, I got struck with this thought, just like out of nowhere, just one day that I had cheated on my application. And the explanation that I had for it in my mind was that just like going through any normal application process, I wrote my essays and then I sent them out to several friends to potentially edit them or give me, give me feedback and advice. I got some of that feedback and advice, including, you know, changing things here and there um, and accepted some of it and submitted my application just like everyone does. But I became convinced that, I mean, so I initially had that thought, maybe I cheated because I accepted Mm -hmm. some of this feedback on like, and those aren't, you know, a hundred percent my words, you know, there was a little, I can, I can even think of uh, the word now that I chose to accept as part of this feedback that I wouldn't have probably used, you know, all on my own. What was it? What was it was shoe- shoehorn. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, but like that was not part of my normal like essay vocabulary, I guess, but it described what I was trying to do perfectly. It was to, it was the, the word shoehorn as a verb. Like I'm going to shoehorn this thing in. And okay. uh, I was like, wow, I did not deserve to get in to my dream school because I, those, you know, that wasn't my essay, which sounds totally, I mean, I, I think it sounds crazy now, um, <laughs> but like, I, so I then felt like I had two options. One was 
uh, email the Dean of Admissions and say, hey, I cheated on my essay. Like, I'm going to leave this in your hands. But even, you know, in my sort of broken state of mind, I recognized how weird that would be, you know? And my, so my other option was just don't go, just turn down, turn down the acceptance and, and not attend. And so that's what I was, that's what I was leaning toward doing. And Aubrey was like, yeah, no, you're not doing that, you know? <laughs> and she literally found uh, an OCD specialist here near our home and set up an appointment for me. And I started going and that was my absolute first exposure to exposure and response mm -hmm. prevention. Um, it was, we had determined, Aubrey and I just through sort of online research at this point that what I had was probably OCD, but we didn't have any, you know, any ways to deal with it. You know, mm -hmm. I, and I wasn't in, in any real way, obviously, given where this, where this had gone. And I attended uh, for the next, or, or not attended, but you know, I, I went to therapy for the next few months before um, matriculation. And it, it, really, it really just turned everything around for me, just understanding more how to, how to deal with this, with this type of thinking, because it's really counterintuitive. Like you, you, want the you want the certainty and you seek the certainty and you get the certainty and that's the temporary mm -hmm. relief. And so you think, okay, that's, I just need more of that, but it's the opposite. You know, what you need is to accept the uncertainty in so many different, in so many different ways or whatever the thing is you need that's bothering you, you need to expose yourself in some way to that thing. And it's just, it's just so counterintuitive. And I, I learned that for the first time by going, to, by going to a therapist. And so whoever is listening to this and um, is wondering you know, what the next step might be, I can't, I really just, uh, despite all of these you know, great books, podcasts, you know, other resources, I don't think there's much, and even church leaders, like, I don't think there's much that can replace you know, talking to a professional. And it's not, I would say not just any therapist, right? Somebody yeah. really does specialize in OCD. I was just going to ask Bonnie, is there a way for people to get a hold of you? Just where can we, where can they reach out if they wanted to? Yeah, to you? you're welcome to um, go to my website. It's just bonnieyoungcounseling.com. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Any other, any other final thoughts, Bonnie, or things that you would like our listeners to hear about, about the subject? So yeah, maybe, maybe one more thought. Um, so scrupulous behavior, scrupulosity loves um, kind of putting a microscope on certain areas of our life, the, the places that we feel unworthy mm -hmm. or we're doing something wrong and is really good at kind of disregarding other parts of our lives, really unbalanced. And um, this happens personally this also happens, I think, as a church, mm. that sometimes we can kind of hyper-focus on certain doctrines or certain principles um, and then kind of leave out other parts that are quite complementary or when included would make a more whole doctrine or, 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 um, or theology. And it's tricky because any behavior that engages with an obsession normally reinforces it right so even avoidance yeah. can be something that can kind of reinforce scrupulosity so oh, avoiding church isn't really to me that feels like it's motivated out of fear right. and not being motivated out of like deliberate choice of this is how I want to live my life this is how oh, I want yeah. to deal with with these scruples and um right so yeah, going to church point. in a way could kind of be exposure 
having said that, I also think, right, I was, I was imagining myself in your shoes with a child, let's say, who's going to church and has a leader who maybe yeah. is very rigid or literal, and there's not a lot of room in their Sunday school class or whatever it is. Would I send my child to that class where they are just going to be tormented and say, I want you yeah. to develop the maturity to be able to discern, right? Yeah. <laughs> An 11-year-old yeah. or a 12-year-old isn't going to be able to do that. And so yeah. I think... Um, for some people, it's important to develop certain boundaries. Mm -hmm. um, but then again, balancing that with, am I being deliberate about engaging in life? Am I avoiding yeah. all of the things that are going to you know, trigger my scrupulosity? Or am, am I engaging in a way that I want to, where I can practice my discerning and I can practice kind of interacting with these things and managing my anxiety? I, and I think that in the church, we have a beautiful theology of, of balance and of duality. Um, Tim, kind of like you were mentioning with a heavenly father and a heavenly mother, I think that when examined closely, like it's there. Sometimes um, though we get really hung up or maybe hyper-focused on um, works or God's justice or um, obedience, um, which are all good things, necessary things. But when we um, don't include grace and mercy and tenderness and, um, and kind of an acceptance of our fallenness. I think that, that, um, that leads us to getting in the pattern or, or being more inclined to, to kind of fall into scrupulosity. And so I, I think that there's a lot of hope. I think that there's so much potential in the church um, in the way that we're talking about our doctrines and our beliefs to include more balance. Um, and so I guess I, I feel hopeful because it's there. And, mm -hmm. it's, um, and I think we might have to dig a little bit for, I think we have some work culturally in the church to change, especially in missions or when we're talking to our youth about these things, but it's, it's there. I, I believe it's there. So I, I feel hopeful. That's such a great point. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that, Bonnie. And yeah. really, just we appreciate you coming on and, and talking about this. Like I said, I really do think this is such a such an important topic that affects a lot, uh, many more people than we than we know about. And I think a lot of our uh, listeners and and their loved ones, you know, really will find a lot of comfort in your in your words and your thoughts here. So thank you, thank you so much again. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Bonnie. Of, of course. Thanks for having me. Hey everybody, thanks so much again for listening to this episode. Bonnie helped us put together a list of amazing resources that we wanted to point you to. There are links in the description to each of these. First of all, in terms of self-help, the mindfulness workbook for OCD you can find on Amazon. Brain Lock by Jeffrey Schwartz is also available on Amazon and one of my favorites. And for kids, what do you do when your brain gets stuck? This is also kind of a workbook for kids on Amazon. Um, hey Warrior by Karen Young has the cutest illustrations and is our kids' favorite uh, little book about OCD. In terms of podcasts, Bonnie recommended the OCD stories. Richard Osler also has done several podcasts related to OCD. Um, you can go to Listen, Learn, and Love and then help head to the mental health section. The Parenting Survival Podcast by Natasha Daniels focuses on kids, especially with OCD. For educational videos, there's madeofmillions.com, Nathan Peterson, OCD, he has a series of um, educational videos on YouTube all about OCD. And then we also love the movie about OCD for kids called Unstuck. And you can find that at OCDKidsMovie.com.
And for conferences, camps, and other general resources, the International OCD Foundation has it all. And maybe most importantly, you can find a list there of therapists who specialize in OCD in your city. Their website is iocdf.org. Okay, I think that's it for now. Thanks again for listening. You can always find more at faithmatters.org.